Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On July 26, 1971, three young teen boys, ages 13 and 14, were driving some horses from one pasture to another on a large farm outside Coquille in Coos Bay, Oregon. They took a break near a small bridge over Snedden Creek. Snedden Creek is a small tidal creek, and there, lying face up in the shallow water, was a body. Police responded to the scene and fished the body out of the water. This was a delicate job as the body was extremely decomposed. State medical examiner Dr. William Brady examined the body and concluded that the remains belonged to a male teen, approximately 14 to 18 years of age, on the shorter side at somewhere between 5'4 and 5'6, and with a medium build of 145 to 155 pounds. He had shoulder-length brown hair. His eye color couldn't be determined. Unfortunately, the ME was also unable to determine the cause of death because of the advanced state of decomposition. There were no marks on any of the teen's bones that provided any clues as to what killed him. The cause of death was just listed as suspicious on the death certificate, a possible homicide. The medical examiner's estimation of the length of time the teen boy had been dead was anywhere from five weeks to five months. It was almost impossible to tell from the state of the remains. The body had no identification and no distinguishing characteristics, so he was labeled a John Doe. But the early investigators on the case came to refer to him affectionately as Frog Boy because of the way his body looked in the creek when it was found. The moniker served to endear Frog Boy to generations of investigators who would handle his case and make identifying him remain a priority over the years. The investigators turned to the clothing Frog Boy was wearing for clues as to who he might be, 
His upper body was clothed in a long-sleeved turtleneck sweater, indicating it might have been cool outside when he died. He wasn't wearing pants, but additional searches of the area where he was found turned up a pair of jeans a short distance from the body that were believed to be his. The Wrangler blue jeans had leather straps crisscross stitched along the outseam of the legs. Captain Jason Patterson of the Coos County Sheriff's Office told me that the jeans were sort of hippie style, and the leather cross-stitching may have been a homemade element, but who had embellished them remained unknown. No shoes or socks were found. One avenue investigators explored to try to figure out how long Frog Boy had been deceased was examining how long he'd been in Snedden Creek. Because if the people on the horse farm used the land around the creek often, they would have observed the body lying there. It was impossible to miss. But unfortunately, this angle provided no helpful information. The area of pasture land was generally unused by anyone other than the horses, and if they had noticed the body in the creek, well, we'll never know. Frog Boy could have been lying there for months undetected. When I first read about this story, I kind of assumed that Frog Boy had washed downstream from a larger body of water into Snedden Creek where he was found. Perhaps he drowned in a lake or was caught up in the rapids of a river that fed the creek. But Captain Patterson told me that is not the case. The way he described it to me is the creek is fed by runoff from the snowmelt in the mountains. It flows to a brackish slough that has a tidal gate that closes and forces the water to rise, which can then be used for irrigation purposes. The water is fresh but not potable. So there wasn't a chance that Frog Boy was drowned in a larger body of water and flowed down to where he was found. Nor did he drown in the creek if he were able-bodied. But my understanding is that the creek was deep enough that if someone fell and hit their head or otherwise entered the water unconscious or impaired, they could indeed drown in it. Investigators began contacting area law enforcement agencies to check on reports of missing teens. Coos County authorities traveled to Portland armed with the deceased teen's dental records to compare them against a 16-year-old boy reported missing there. They weren't a match. In fact, 11 missing youths were quickly ruled out as being the person whose remains were found. Meanwhile, Coos County deputies contacted all the residents in the area to see if anyone knew who Frogboy could be. At this time, Coos Bay was a boomtown, with thriving fishing and logging industries attracting men from all over the country seeking work. The transient nature of the area made the wider investigation difficult. The farm where Frogboy was found was located in a somewhat rural area, but there were houses nearby including one larger development about a quarter mile away. Investigators learned that the area where Frogboy was found was often used by local kids to hang out and party. Unfortunately, they were unable to locate anyone who knew who Frogboy was or who would admit to knowing who he was. After the coroner's examination was complete and there was nothing further that could be done by that department, the Coos County authorities gathered funds to pay for a burial plot for Frogboy. He was interred in a simple, unmarked grave, but his case was not forgotten, even though years and then decades passed. Fast forward to 2017. The Coos County Sheriff's Office decided that they wanted to make use of new advances in DNA technology to try finally to identify Frog Boy. So they lined up funding from the Oregon State Medical Examiner's Office, located Frog Boy's grave, and exhumed his body. As we've seen many times before, Bone fragments were severed from the remains so that DNA could be extracted that might be able to identify him. From the bone fragments, whole genome sequencing was performed. The DNA was degraded with a call rate of 84.95%. But there was a sufficient amount of usable DNA to prepare a SNP profile for Frog Boy, and then it was off to the races. 
C.C. Moore, working in partnership with Oregon State forensic anthropologist Dr. Nikki Vance and the Oregon State Police Medical Examiner's Office, got to work in early June 2021. Because of a partnership between Parabon and the Coos County authorities, C.C. had worked on other Doe cases from the area. Generally, she told me she found she was able to provide leads as to these Jane or John Doe's names fairly quickly. That wasn't the case here, though. It initially looked promising and then proved more complex than anticipated. To start, Frog Boy's SNP profile was uploaded to GEDmatch and then also to Family Tree DNA. The top DNA relative shared 104.8 centimorgans with Frog Boy. This person was born in 1914 and was likely a half-second cousin or second cousin once removed. But there were lots of other matches. In fact, the top 14 DNA relatives ranged from 104 centimorgans on the high end to 35 centimorgans of shared DNA on the low end but the top 11 were all 70 centimorgans or greater. This was a positive start, so CC rated the case a 3, a relatively promising assessment. She focused on creating genetic networks, clustering together those DNA relatives of the unidentified teen whose DNA showed that they were also related to each other. The goal was to find common ancestors. CC was able to identify two distinct genetic networks to which 3 and 5 of the top DNA relatives belonged, respectively. From there, it was building trees for the members of those two networks, as many as 15 trees, with the use of historical documents and databases to construct the branches. In genetic network number one, CC identified deep roots in two adjacent counties in Tennessee. Natives of this area typically exhibit quite a bit of pedigree collapse, in which many people are interrelated and thus share small segments of DNA, making the research complicated. In genetic network number two, and I'm taking this directly from CC's report because otherwise I'd get it wrong, the DNA relatives exhibited significant ancestry from a German ethnic group that immigrated to the western United States from Saratov, Russia. This group is typically called Volga Germans. This particular batch settled in Minidoka County, Idaho. So how were these two genetic networks, which shared no DNA with each other and represented both sides of Frog Boy's parental lines, intersect? Where did they triangulate? Cece hoped that she would be able to find members of these two networks who had married and had a documented child. Genetic network number one included many members of the Trent family. But many of the Trent family members were interrelated, and there were multiple branches tracing back to the 1600s and 1700s making the identification of the specific Trent branch to which John Doe belonged highly complex. However, CC could see that some members of genetic network number one descended from other families as well, with surnames like Winstead, Cobb, Mitchell, and Rogers. So she knew that the subject was likely descended from Trent and one of these other recurring surnames. And the top DNA relative was descended from a family named Davis, whose descendants appeared throughout the same genetic network. So Davis was another name Cece suspected would be an ancestor of Frog Boy. And then DNA relatives four and five both descended from common ancestors John Maxie and Polly Nichols, who lived in Hancock County, Tennessee, in the 1800s. The Maxie family was widespread throughout this area of Tennessee and was also related to many of the families in this same population group. The Maxie name appeared more and more the farther back Cece traced her trees. At this point, Cece had an idea that could make her life easier. She knew that Frog Boy was believed to be a teenager. Well, perhaps he was listed in Nick Mac. 
She used the two names she had that were the most widespread throughout genetic network number one, Trent and Maxie. She plugged them into the NCMEC database and got no results. Then she tried the same at NamUs, no dice. It was back to tree building. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Cece then turned to genetic network number two. DNA relative number two and several other DNA relatives were in this network. This was the tree to which the Volga Germans belonged. The dominant surnames were Rau, R-A-U, and Beetz, B-I-E-T-Z. The names Krauss and Weber were also prevalent. It was time for descendancy research. Someone from each population group must have produced a child together. The marriage of Elizabeth Trent and William Davis, both born in the 1840s, tied together all the ancestral names Cece had seen in genetic network number one. Their daughter, Dona Davis, born in 1888, married a Winston Arthur Maxey, Sr., born 1885. This marriage combined matches 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 19 into one pedigree. And the couple moved to, guess where, Minidoka, Idaho. Winston Arthur Maxey Jr. married a woman named Laureen H. in the Minidoka, Idaho area. She was directly descended from Mary Beats and Savine Beats, likely sisters, both of whom were born in the mid-1800s in Saratov, Russia. The Volga Germans have entered the chat. Genetic networks number one and two converged in this marriage between Winston Arthur Maxey Jr., born 1928, and the still-living woman with the name Laureen H., born 1935. They lived in Rupert, Minidoka, Idaho, and had eight children, four of whom were sons and who were the right age to be frog boy. By now, it was July of 2021. Cece had spent nearly two months on this project. But now she strongly suspected that one of these four Maxie's sons was frog boy. A little research into the sons indicated that two were still alive and had documented proof of life, such as tax records and addresses. One brother had died, and there was obituary information for him. But one brother had not been heard from, and there was no documented proof of life since 1971. And then Cece noticed an Idaho Cold Cases Facebook page about a family searching for their relative. A woman who had been adopted out as a baby was looking for her father. Her name was Lori Merriam. Her father was Winston Arthur the III. The same name Cece had unearthed as the one missing son of the family with four sons from Idaho. 
and the Idaho Cold Cases Facebook page reflected that Winston Arthur Maxey III had left Idaho in spring 1971 to hitchhike to Coos Bay, Oregon. CeCe's report to law enforcement naming Winston Arthur Maxey III, a.k.a. Wint, as the likely identification of Frog Boy, stated that it was a very high-confidence potential identification, based on the fact that connections were found to 18 of Frog Boy's top and key genetic matches throughout both the maternal and paternal sides of his family tree. It turned out that Wint was third cousins once removed to the top DNA relative of 104.8 centimorgans. This didn't line up exactly with the expectations of second cousin once removed because of the pedigree collapse I discussed earlier. It turned out Wint was descended from nine sets of common ancestors to which the top 20 matches belonged. By the way, CeCe's briefing of the Coos County authorities took place on July 29, 2021, almost exactly 50 years after Frog Boy was discovered in Snedden Creek. The agencies agreed that CeCe was the best person to reach out to Wint's suspected daughter, Lori Merriam. This was unusual, but with CeCe's history of working with adoptees, they felt she might be the most sensitive to what Lori was going through. She was aware from Lori's online postings about her father that she was hopeful her father would be alive or would at least have an extended family she could make a connection with. Someone had to break the news to her that it was not to be. So on August 2nd, CeCe reached out personally to Lori. When Lori got CeCe's message, at first she thought it was a crank call, but then when she realized who CeCe was, she knew the news wasn't good. Sure enough, CeCe told her that she believed she had found her father, and unfortunately, he was deceased. In order to verify that CeCe's hypothesis was correct, she requested that Lori, who had already tested her DNA on Ancestry.com, upload her DNA profile to GEDmatch. Because her raw data file was already in the Ancestry database, this was something that could be done immediately while Cece and Lori were on the phone together. Lori uploaded, and Cece ran an immediate comparison. Lori shared 3,547 centimorgans with Wint, a parent-child relationship. Wint was her father, and he had been dead since basically the time she was born. She was devastated. Let's talk about Lori. Lori Merriam was born on June 15, 1971, in Idaho, and immediately adopted by a loving family. Throughout her childhood, they were honest with her about the fact that she was adopted, and she told Dateline she always felt a little different, since she really didn't look like her adoptive parents. She always wanted to find her birth parents, and started gathering what information she could from a young age. She told Dateline, quote, I got it narrowed down to about a 150-mile radius of Boise, where I was born and raised. I had paperwork, some of my adoption paperwork that described the age of my birth mom, what she looked like, how many siblings she had, end quote. Lori knew her mother was from a rural area of Idaho, but that was about it. When Lori turned 18 in the summer of 1988, she decided to invest some money she'd saved from her job in hiring a private eye to try to find her birth parents. It took her PI 24 hours to find her birth mother, Kay. Lori finally got to meet her, as well as a half-brother, T, and an aunt, R, Kay's sister. So the million-dollar question Lori wanted an answer to was, of course, who was my dad? Well, Kay told her that she found herself pregnant at age 15. She didn't want to give Lori her baby up for adoption, but her parents sent her to the Booth Maternity Home in Boise, a home for unwed mothers, for the remainder of her pregnancy. After she gave birth, Lori was adopted out. Kay kept Lori's birth certificate, but there was no father's name listed. But Kay remembered his name, 
and for Christmas, the year they were reunited, Kay gave Lori a photo of her father and his name. It was Winston Wint Arthur Maxie III. The problem was, Kay had no idea where Wint was. She hadn't seen him since before being sent to the Booth maternity home. He hadn't even known that she was pregnant. Now that Lori knew who her father was, she found his parents. In the latter part of 1988, she met her paternal grandparents, Winston Arthur Maxey Jr. and Laureen H. Maxey. They told her Wint was the second oldest of their eight children, four boys and four girls. The family had moved around quite a bit, among the towns of Cary, Caldwell, and Rupert, eventually settling in rural Rupert, Idaho, about two and a half hours from Boise. But that's about all they could tell her. The Maxies didn't know where their son Wint was either. He had left home in the spring of 1971 and had never been heard from since. The Maxies had never even known Lori existed. It became apparent to Lori that her father's family back in the 70s was somewhat dysfunctional. She heard all sorts of differing stories about what her father was like, not all of them positive. He didn't have a good relationship with his mother. And one of the stories she heard was from Wint's younger sister, Lori's aunt Marla. Marla was just a young teen when Wint, age 15, left the home for good in 1971. She recalled that Wint was pretty rebellious, bucking against his parents' rules and expectations. He constantly challenged their authority and ran away more than once. His parents sent him to the Idaho Youth Ranch, a working ranch for wayward teens. Wint wanted nothing to do with this, so he ran away from the ranch and returned home. Lori posted this on the Facebook page she's dedicated to her father, quote, He was sent home from this place, and when he arrived home, Grandma wouldn't let him on the property because his hair was shoulder length. So he left from his parents' house. One of his sisters lived in Boise and got him from Rupert to Boise. He stayed with her and left from Boise, end quote. This older sister who helped Wint out was named Vicky. No one knows exactly how Wint got to her house in Boise, but she has verified that he was there for a few days after leaving home. Vicky says Wint was only in Boise for a short time. He told her he'd heard that Coos Bay, Oregon, was the place to be for men looking for work, and he was headed out that way. It's unknown how he traveled to Coos Bay, whether he hitchhiked or what. But we know that he made it there since his body was found in Snedden Creek in July 1971. No one in the Maxey family ever reported Wint missing. Marla told Dateline, quote, My mom and dad, they more or less just said, he went out on his own, that's what he chose to do, and you know, there's nothing we can do about it. As an adult, Marla had tried to find her older brother. This, again, from Dateline, quote, She reached out to a social security office to see if she could get any information on Wint. They couldn't give me his social security number, she said. But she said they did tell her that she could write a letter and they'd send it to the address on file. And if he wanted to get back in touch with me, he would write me, Marla said. If not, then that was that. So Marla wrote a letter to her long-lost brother. I wrote the letter and took it to Social Security, Marla said. He never did get back in touch with me. End quote. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Le Boricua. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So Wint Maxey was never reported missing. Most of his siblings were younger and probably had very limited recall of the brother who had left in search of his fortune in Oregon. What's odd is that when Lori Merriam approached the Maxies in 1988 about her missing father, the family wasn't super cooperative in helping her find him. They didn't want to provide his birth certificate or take any action to report him missing. Lori was unable officially to report her father went missing herself because, since his name was not on her birth certificate, she had no proof that she was related to him. Her mom had told her who he was, but she had no documentary evidence that Wint was her father. As time went on, Lori tried harder and harder to locate her father. She placed ads in papers in Bend and Portland, Oregon, asking if anyone remembered young Wint. In 2016, she tested her DNA and submitted it to Ancestry, hoping that perhaps her father would be looking for his family. No luck. On August 10, 2016, she started the Facebook page, Where in the World is Winston Maxey, in which she asked Facebook users to help her find the missing father she'd never met. Lori also attempted to get Wint added to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NCMEC, and the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, NamUs databases. But without an official missing persons report for him, he could not be included in those databases, which is why Cece did not find him listed there when she searched the name Maxie during her early research. Lori also started working with the Idaho Cold Cases Facebook page to publicize Wint's missing persons case in that state to see if anyone might have traveled with him to Oregon or know what happened to him. Idaho Cold Cases ran Wint's photo and the little information that was known about him. And this was where Cece Moore came across the name she had homed in on as a potential candidate to be Frog Boy. Once Lori and Cece connected and Lori's DNA profile showed that she was a biological child of Wint's, an official identification of Wint still had to be made. This was because authorities required a documented relationship to identify Wint. Since he wasn't named on Lori's birth certificate, there was no official documentation connecting them. Lori, being his biological child, did not establish that the remains in Snedden Creek were, in fact, Wint Maxey. So, Parabon contacted one of Wint's legal relatives, a sister, and asked her to participate in kinship testing. Her DNA showed a full sibling relationship, and she could demonstrate through documentary evidence that her other brothers were accounted for and she had a brother named Wint who wasn't. This was sufficient to establish that the remains were, indeed, Wint. So what is known about Winston Arthur Maxey III? Well, Lori has posted quite a bit of what she's learned about her father and his family. Wint's grandfather and namesake 
Winston Arthur Maxey Sr., was born on August 13, 1885, in Tennessee. By 1898, at the age of 13, he was working as a water boy for the railroad. He worked his way up to engineer, and in 1912, he married Callie Donna Davis. A few years later, they decided to relocate to Oregon, but after stopping in Rupert, Idaho to visit family and friends, they decided to stay there. Wint's father, Winston Arthur Maxey Jr., was born in 1928, and then his son, Little Wint, as he was called by his family, was born on October 4, 1955, in Rupert, Idaho. He was the second child and the first son born to Winston Arthur Maxey Jr. and his wife, Laureen Maxey. Laurie has been in contact with childhood friends of Wint's from school, and they describe him as a shy boy with a big heart. He was creative, building a skateboard because his family couldn't afford to buy him one. As he got older, he had a difficult relationship with his parents. He left Idaho in June 1971 at age 15 and died not knowing that he left behind a daughter. That daughter, Lori, is now in possession of her father's remains. Wint's death remains a mystery. The 1971 medical examiner labeled his death suspicious, and it is considered a possible homicide. Captain Patterson and I agreed that his death seems unlikely to be from natural causes. Wint was known to be an outdoorsman and to be hardy and strong. It seems unlikely that he would have perished from exposure, as some have suggested. Wint was in Coos Bay in the months of June and July when the weather is on the warmer side. He didn't freeze to death. He most likely didn't drown in Snedden Creek. And he didn't just fall into the creek and expire. At age 15, at age 15, a heart attack or other catastrophic natural event is extremely unlikely. On the other hand, there are no marks on Wint's bones or signs of trauma to his skull that would point to homicide, and no bullets or casings were found anywhere near the body. Lori Miriam believes her father Wint was murdered. She has renamed her Facebook page, Who in the World Murdered Winston Maxey? She would like for anyone who knows anything about her father or anyone who interacted with a teenage boy with reddish-brown hair in Idaho or in Coos Bay, Oregon in 1971, to please message her. She has also established the Winston Arthur Maxey Foundation. According to the mission statement of the charitable organization, the foundation is dedicated to educating and supporting Oregon families with missing loved ones. I spoke with Captain Patterson about the status of the investigation into Wint's death. He told me it is categorized by his department as a recovered missing person. However, they are investigating the case. Captain Patterson told me he has some avenues that he's concerned with that he continues to investigate, and that some people in Idaho are being interviewed. One theory they are considering is whether Wint may have left Idaho in the company of someone else. They're also looking into whether his death could be connected to another similar case in Idaho from around the same time frame. Captain Patterson is hopeful that now that Wint's name and photo are out there, that anyone who was in the Coos County, Oregon area in June or July of 1971, who may have seen or interacted with Wint, will contact him at the Coos County Sheriff's Office at 541 546-7800. Hi guys, this is Jess. I know this is going to be disappointing for listeners, but DNA ID will be taking a two-week break after this episode. This is due to circumstances beyond our control, including our attendance at CrimeCon and various other commitments, both professional and personal. We will be back on October 16th with an all-new episode of DNA ID. We do hope to see you all at CrimeCon. If you're going, please be sure to stop by our table and say hello and pick up some goodies. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. 
An Abjack Insider subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.